Hey, I'm Hypermobile, and if you're listening to this, I'm guessing you might be too. Hi, my name is Alex, and I'm your Hypermobile host. And today on Help, I'm Hypermobile, we are talking all about hypermobility and your menstrual cycle. So I work a lot with patients, obviously my my work is all with hypermobile patients these days, but I work a lot with hypermobile patients and they seem to more often than not have a variety of period issues. I have patients who have irregular periods. I have patients who have um, issues with excessive bleeding. I have patients who have issues with excessive pain. People with periods have a lot of issues with them. And there was an article out today, actually, in The Guardian talking about how often period issues are dismissed by GPs and other medical providers. And this is a huge issue, which unfortunately I have to agree with based on what I see in my patients. Um, in my work as a UK registered osteopath, I'm often telling my patients, Go, have you told your doctor about what you've just told me? And they say, yeah, I have. And they told me that it's normal. Well, do I have news for you? <laughs> because it's not normal having a lot of period pain and having it really negatively affect your life. Um, because for some people it is disabling. They live in fear every time that they're going to have another period happen. Their symptoms are so severe that they can't go to work or school when they're having them. So this is serious stuff. But the physiology and some of the science here, I think it's really cool. And I'm so excited to get into it in detail. Uh, As well, today, I'll be talking a little bit about how you can literally read your body. So if you're someone who has periods, you can use that information to help you potentially be able to better communicate with healthcare providers, or at the very least, so that you can understand more what's going on with your body. And of course, throughout this episode, you're going to see me coming back to this idea of test intervention retest. And in my opinion, this is something which every healthcare provider should be doing. I don't care if you're a top medical specialist. I don't care if you're like me, maybe you're an osteopath. It doesn't matter. Every single healthcare provider needs to be doing some kind of assessment. Patient comes in with a problem, you assess. Maybe it's blood work if you're a medical doctor. If you're like me, maybe it's a type of orthopedic test or active resisted muscle test or whatever. It doesn't matter. You do some test. You then do an intervention of some kind and you have hopefully good reasoning for why you're doing that intervention. And then within a set window of time, you schedule a retest. You want to see, was my hypothesis correct? Did my recommendation have a positive effect on that patient's symptoms? So you do test, intervention, and retest always. But Before we go any further, I do want to stress, as always, this podcast is for informational purposes only. This is not medical advice in any way, shape, or form, as I do not know you or your unique medical history. So on that note, let's get started talking about physiology. So many patients who see me, they think they know what goes on in their body when they have a period. They think that all of their bleeds are periods, but they're wrong. (laughs) So... When you have a period, there is a very complex sequence of events that occurs. And before we go any further, I want to clarify that a period as is defined as a bleed following ovulation. So if you're someone who's on hormonal birth control, you're not having periods, you're having bleeds. They're, they're technically withdrawal bleeds probably or breakthrough bleeds if you're taking it continuously. But they are not technically periods because a period is defined as a bleed following ovulation. Now, I do also want to say, by the way, that um, I'm someone who is not anti 
a lot of things, I guess. I am pro good patient outcomes and I have patients who are on hormonal birth control and that is absolutely the right choice for that individual. I also have patients who are not on hormonal birth control and for those individuals, that's often the right choice as well. So I'm just pro people doing what's right for them, okay? Because this stuff is all very complicated. It might depend on where you live in the world, how you handle things or what you have access to. So this is just me speaking about physiology here and what you do with that information is up to you. But when you have someone who has a uterus and ovaries and who is not on hormonal birth control, in theory, they're going to be having ovulatory cycles. And this happens and we start the cycle by saying they're going to have a period, right? So they have that bleed and that bleed will last anywhere from about three days to a week. If it's longer than that, that starts to be of some concern. So if you're someone who's having a bleed that's lasting 10 days, that's not normal. Now, they'll have that bleed and the bleed will stop. And their little, like their uh, oocyte, their little egg, it will start to mature. And this happens every cycle. And they actually compete because your body's trying to find the best one that's that it's going to use in the event that you were to get pregnant. So that little egg starts to grow and get bigger and bigger. And the egg is inside something called a follicle. And it's like a little home for the egg, a little house. So at a specific point in that cycle and in a, in a textbook normal cycle, that's going to be cycle day 14, although people have cycles of varying lengths, that uh, hormonal threshold is going to be hit. So there will be the right amount of estrogen and a few other things that happen, uh, FSH, follicle stimulating hormone and so on, that cause that ovulatory event to happen. It's all or nothing. So if that ovulation occurs, the little egg leaves its home. So it, it, it ruptures from the follicle. And actually, it's kind of like a physiologically violent event. And that's why some people do have pain during ovulation. Um, the German word for that is Mittelschmerz, I believe. But anyways, the egg goes on its little journey down the fallopian tubes to see if it's going to uh, end up becoming, um, being, uh, encountering some sperm, to put it that way. And the follicle, in the meantime, it does something incredible. The follicle within a 24-hour window turns into a hormone-secreting tissue that is two to five centimeters in diameter. It builds its own blood vessels and it starts to secrete progesterone. So just think about this for a second. Not only every time you have a menstrual cycle occur where you've ovulated, are you creating an, the potential, you know, for technically for, for life if you're going to, you know, end up getting pregnant there, right? Like we have that egg forming and that is, it's the biggest cell in the body. It's the size of a period of at the end of a sentence. It's a metabolically expensive process to ovulate. Like it's really cool. But the follicle is forming into essentially an, an organ almost. It's a set of tissues with a dedicated function to produce progesterone. So you're building like a, a little mini organ every month, every, well, not necessarily every month because people have cycles of different lengths, but you're building a little mini organ that secretes progesterone. Isn't that cool? And in the event that you were to become pregnant, that follicle will secrete progesterone until week 10 of the pregnancy when the placenta can take over. That's how important that follicle is. And it's actually the quality of the, the corpus luteum that determines the length of the luteal phase. And that's important because we'll come back to that later. But sometimes people, when they aren't super well, they might have shorter luteal phases because they're not able to make the best corpus luteum. Uh, so this is where the physiology understanding is really, really important. Anyways, the egg will go on its journey and the progesterone that's being secreted from the corpus luteum maintains the environment that 
is uh, maintains the endometrial lining essentially. So it keeps it there. It keeps everything kind of like pause. So the first part of the cycle, the follicular phase, that's like grow, grow, grow. We're going to thicken that uterine lining. We're going to get everything ready. And then when that, when ovulation occurs, everything freezes and that's the progesterone half of the cycle. Now the egg's going to hang out there. And in the event, obviously that it encounters sperm and is fertilized, then we'll go on to have a pregnancy potentially. But in the event that it does not encounter any sperm, it is going to be shed as a period. And that's why a period is defined as a bleed following ovulation, because uh, otherwise you might have something called a breakthrough bleed. So let's say, for example, that you're someone who has really long cycles. I'm someone, I've had 165 day cycles. I've had 90 day cycles. I now have like normal cycles, which is amazing. And I'm really proud of that. But let's say you're someone with long cycles. You might be bleeding every month, but it's possible that those bleeds are breakthrough bleeds and are not actually periods. And this is why you can have people who um, they're really confused. They say that they're someone who's trying to become pregnant and they can't get pregnant. Um, it may be because they're not ovulating because they're not um, actually having periods. They're just having breakthrough bleeds and they're kind of stuck in that follicular part of the cycle, the pre-ovulatory part. And this is another concept that's really important is that the pre-ovulatory part of the cycle can be any length of time. It could be hundreds of days long. There is no limit on that length of that first half of the cycle. However, the uh, second part of the cycle, I shouldn't say half because it's not always a half, but the second part of the cycle, the luteal phase, there is a limit on that. And that limit is imposed because the corpus luteum can only survive for so long. It can only do its job for so long. And that's why um, you really will not have a, a luteal phase that's longer than 18 days unless if a pregnancy occurs. Now, in terms of progesterone, it's a cool hormone and it interacts with your thyroid gland and it starts to affect your metabolism. And this is why females uh, or anyone who has a uterus and ovaries, they do experience a ever so slightly increased metabolism and increased body temperature for that luteal phase of the cycle. Now, to be clear, it's not enough that you can go eat like a million, you know, cakes or desserts or whatever, but it's, a, it's just enough that we can actually really easily measure it. And this is where we get to body literacy. Now, body literacy is a term which was first used by a female health advocate named Laura Wurschler. Um, and this person, uh, she describes body literacy as being able to not only read the signs of your body, but to derive meaning from those signs and to interpret them. And it's something which has been present in the female or uh, people with uteruses and ovaries, this type of health sphere since 2005. But it's a concept which I use a lot with my patients. That's why I'm so uh, passionate about body literacy, because if you learn what's going on with your shoulder, what's going on with your ankle or why it's acting that way, it's really helpful for hypermobile people because then you know what's happening. And when you know what's happening, it's less scary. But anyways, back to the uh, female and uterus and ovaries health specific stuff. So with body literacy in this context, what you can do if you're someone who's not on hormonal birth control is you can chart your cycle using two easy and accessible, or I say easy, but relatively easy, accessible and um, low cost biomarkers. You can measure your temperature using a basal body thermometer, and you can buy one of those for like eight pounds, 10 pounds, maybe. Um, there are more expensive devices, but it's something that I was able to afford when I was a student. 
And the second biomarker, uh, cervical fluid, uh, some people call it cervical mucus, um, but being able to chart that biomarker just requires a bit of loo roll, as they say here, or toilet paper, and being able to assess it visually for the most part, although some people will assess it in different ways. (laughs) Anyways, what I have uh, some patients do who are keen to do this, and, and not it's not for everyone. <laughs> if it's not for you, that's okay. But what some people do is that they will use a method of um, charting the signs of their body called the symptothermal method. So sympto kind of refers to the cervical fluid component. Thermal refers to obviously taking your temperature. And they will chart their temperature and cervical fluid findings. And it ends up being a line graph with the temperature and a bar graph with the cervical fluid. And remember how earlier I talked about how progesterone interacts with your thyroid gland and how it increases that body temperature? I like I like to think of it actually as like preheating the oven. You know, bun, bun in the oven joke about being pregnant. It's like this is like you're preheating the oven. Anyways, so by taking your temperature every morning and to be clear, it's not a normal thermometer. You cannot get a normal thermometer. It has to be a basal body thermometer that's accurate to plus or minus 0.05 degrees Celsius. If you need to find some, you can check my Amazon shop. But by charting your temperature, what you will see is in the event that you ovulate, there will be a sustained increase in temperature of 0.2 degrees Celsius. Now, we are not robots. (laughs) There will be some little ups and downs, but there are specific rules for charting that and for interpreting that data. And again, I will include a link in the description for this. Uh, And you can, of course, work with, hopefully, your medical uh, provider, your healthcare providers. But if not them, you can work with various kind of coaches out there. There are there are actual like certified institutions that exist to support people who wish to do this. And in the UK, actually, you can supposedly access support for learning this type of charting through the NHS, whether or not it's actually available, given some of the stressors on the healthcare system right now is, um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure of the situation, but that's how scientifically valid this is. And I will always be clear, if I'm talking about something holistic, if I'm talking about something a little bit out there, I will tell you, but this is hard science. So you can chart your temperature. And in the event that you ovulate, you should see that sustained temperature rise. Now, with uh, cervical fluid, what happens is that we start out with the period. We then have cervical fluid, which increasingly becomes more fertile. And fertile cervical fluid, it's clear, it's stretchy, it's lubricative. Um, the way that I have patients assess this is by taking a piece of loo roll and wiping themselves um, before they go pee when they're using the bathroom. And that way you can see what's going on with your body. And when that cervical fluid is looks fertile and there are certain characteristics and certain ways of charting, and you can go learn more about this. There's, um, there's a brilliant website called the Cervical Mucus Library, actually, if you need uh, support in that. But what we see is uh, a change throughout the cycle in the quality of that cervical fluid. And once ovulation occurs, it changes all of a sudden and it becomes kind of like dry and pasty and it's an entirely different texture. Um, and it looks visually different as well. Anyways, and I, I get that maybe some of you might be squeamish with me talking about this, but this is science. Like this, this is how it is. And you know what? I was going to put a disclaimer, but why do we have to put disclaimers on female bodies? Like this is the type of stuff if I had a, a 12-year-old girl, I'd be talking with her about it. So I think that we need to stop feeling ashamed of how female bodies work. But anyways, you will then have the rest of that post-ovulatory cervical fluid, which should have different characteristics. And then eventually that cycle will end and a period will occur and a period marks the beginning of that new cycle. So that becomes cycle day one. Now, this type of charting, what's so awesome about it is firstly, it can save lives. 
I've had patients who, after doing this type of charting, have on, have gone on to say, hey, I'm having irregular bleeding. And to be able to show that to their medical doctor and say, this is not normal for me. Because these patients now know they're normal so well. And to be able to go to your medical doctor and show that and say, I'm really worried because I'm concerned about maybe cervical cancer or whatever. This bleeding is not normal. It helps people get listened to sometimes. It does seem to help patients um, be able to access care and it helps to explain what's going on with their cycle. Um, again, should patients have to be as like educated and as um, much doing as much like self-advocating as they kind of have to these days? No, ideally, of course, that would not be the situation, but that's the reality of the situation right now. So it helps you to understand your body. And because it helps you to understand your body, it helps you to speak confidently about your body. As well, though, remember that test intervention retest model we talked about at the beginning? What I love about having people chart their cycles is we then have a framework through which we can say like, hey, if we add in this supplement, if you start taking myoinositol or whatever, how does it affect your, your cycles? Do we start to get a bit of a healthier, longer luteal phase? Do we potentially, you know, maybe are we going to start to see ovulatory cycles? Like we have, now have a way to challenge things. Uh, for me personally, there was one time where I was um, eating in a way that I wasn't getting enough fat in. And it was really helpful for me to be able to see in my charts, in my cycles that I stopped ovulating. And I said, well, <laughs> I guess I need some more fat in my diet. So I was literally just like having spoonfuls of peanut butter or whatever it was at the time. And that was how I fixed that. So it, it gives you a way to check things. Also, um, I found it handy as well during uh, the pandemic. I was able to see, hey, this is like a weirdly high temperature for me. Something's not right here. And so it kind of gave me a heads up in terms of how my body's feeling. It's, it's almost like a barometer. And there are a lot of things that suck about having a uterus and ovaries and periods. There are many things that suck. I do not recommend it. But this is one of the few things that makes me feel bad for my patients who are unable to do this kind of charting, which is like physiologically not a thing that they can do because it gives you so much information and it helps put you in control of your body. Um, as someone who charts my cycles, I've been doing it for close to 10 years now. I'm excited, like in the event that I ever got pregnant, I know when that happened because I know when I ovulated uh, within a margin of error of I think like three to five days. Um, I know if in the future, when I go through menopause, I'm going to see that coming through changes in my cycle. I'm going to be able to chart that change in my body, which is just so incredible and so beautiful and so cool. Now, I do want to say, do not ever trust a machine to do this kind of interpretation for you, especially if you're a hypermobile person and especially for someone who has polycystic ovarian syndrome, because uh, those devices out there um, I don't know if I can name them, but the apps and the little like electronic thingies that just magically tell you what you can do on a given day or whatever, they do not work for people who are not within that like norm category. And if you're listening to this, I hate to say it, but that's probably not you. Um, so I, I strongly, strongly recommend against all of those devices, um, the method that I recommend again is the symptothermal method and it's just using a thermometer. It's using your own ability to interpret and examine your cervical fluid. And it's the ability to make a line graph and a bar graph. And quite frankly, I could have done this when I was 12. And supposedly they teach schoolgirls in a few different countries like this type of thing when they're doing their classes, you know, like their sex ed or whatever, like they're teaching them how to do this. And it's something that I'm shocked and 
angry. I was talking with another patient yesterday and that patient was angry that she never had anyone explain this to her. And I, you know what, I've, it's been a long time since I was angry about it, but I, but I am angry because why are we not teaching this stuff when it's so cool and so, in, so truly empowering? Um, so anyways, I hope that you've learned uh, something interesting about your body today. I hope that regardless of whether or not you have a uterus or ovaries, maybe the corpus luteum is now your favorite tissue in the human body like mine, because I think it's pretty darn cool. And I hope that if you're someone who is not on hormonal birth control, or if you're someone who's considering coming off it, of course, as always, please speak with your medical doctor and do what's right for you. But I hope that maybe this has given you something that you want to look into and learn more about because for people who just don't know what's going on and things are confusing or they're stopping their hormonal birth control and they, they don't really know how their body's gonna behave, this can be a nice way to kind of make sense of the hormonal chaos that sometimes happens in different bodies so if you're looking to learn more of course listen to future episodes again we will talk more about this and uh two books i want to give a shout out to the period repair manual by laura bryden that was the first book i read on the subject and it was hugely hugely helpful to me um as well as the fifth vital sign by lisa hendrickson drax um and she also has a podcast called fertility friday and i have listened to most of those episodes and i really recommend um especially the early ones because she kind of goes through the details of charting your cycle in those episodes Anyways, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. This is truly one of my favorite subjects and I look forward to having you join me next time. Take care. Bye.